We are in the book of Revelation, the prophecy, the things that are. We're in Revelations chapter 3, the first part of 14, or we're finishing our talk. We were talking of the first and last church. Christ is interested in each overcoming and producing good spiritual works. Anybody that talks otherwise is a heretic, is a false shepherd. There is no irresistible grace. There is no once saved, always saved. It's not all grace and faith. These are lies propagated by false shepherds. Jesus spoke and the apostles that you must produce fruit. You have to obey the Lord. Does Jesus said, why you call me Lord if you're not going to obey me? There is no faith that covers everything irregardless of you. There is always a human and a divine side in spiritual matters. Jesus is divine. Everything comes from him. But it has to go through the branches, and that's the consent of the branches, the yielding, the willingness of the branch. Otherwise, there is no fruit, and without fruit, the branch is cut off and cast into the fire. So there is no accepting the Lord, and then it's all downhill. Accepting the Lord is just entering the race. It's just beginning your race with the Lord. And he provides graces and virtues and weapons that the Christian is to use. If the Christian does not use them, he backslides. He becomes of the world again. He becomes twice dead, and eventually he'll be plucked up by the roots. There'll be no hope. So the responsibility in Scripture and all of the epistles and gospel is always put on the individual. We know that God will do his part, and he will give us grace and help. The Holy Spirit's called alongside of us. The Spirit of Christ indwells us. But these graces and helps have to be used. If they're not used, they do not work. Very simple. And the epistles appeal to the Christian to do something or not to do something. His will has everything to do with whether he'll make it to heaven or not. The plan of salvation, he has nothing to do with. God has set up the plan within his will. What he has to do is accept the plan on God's conditions. That's his part. He can believe all he wants of who Christ is. That will not get him into heaven. While the vast multitudes we've said, millions upon hundreds of millions that claim to be Christians, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, at the day of judgment, and Jesus is going to say, you're cursed, you're not mine, you're workers of lawlessness, and I never knew you. But they believe Jesus died on a cross for them. See, they had mental assent. That is not Christianity. See, They have to yield and follow and obey the Lord from the time they're born again to the time they die or till the rapture of the church. Those are the only ones going to make it. So we see with the seven churches, the Lord talks to each one of them and tells them what happens and what they get if they overcome. They don't get it if they don't overcome. And he also says to each one, I know what your works are. He didn't say, I know what you believe. It's irrelevant what they believe if there's no fruit. 
If there's no obedience, if there's no follow-through, it's nothing but lip service. As the Lord said, people on the Jewish system of the Old Covenant, he said they honor me with their lips, but their heart's far from me. They sing and they worship and they sacrifice. And he says, I actually detest it. Why does he detest it? Because they don't live right before him. They go through form and ritual and ceremony, and he's not interested in that if the heart's not in it. As he told the Jew, you base so much on being circumcised. He said, if you don't obey the law, your circumcision doesn't count. Well, that throws them for a loop, doesn't it? So we want to look at these churches that we've had, and every one of them, he examines their works, and he warns them, negative and positive, that they must overcome at the end. And he's talking to some that are overcoming. And he's talking to some who have backslidden and lost their standing with God. So he's given a warning. And these areas were once had a lampstand. That means there was a viable church in that area, even though a couple of churches, he didn't have much at all good to say about them. And the majority of the people are backslidden and lost. They had a lampstand, and he was getting ready to remove the power of the church. It would go back to the individual. He would deal with them in a different way. Well, over the centuries, the Roman Catholic heresy and false religion uh, took over for three, four hundred years. So they stayed lost. And then in the sixth century or so, the Muslims took the whole area. All seven churches are in what we call Turkey. It's a Muslim country. So there definitely is no church or witness in those areas anymore. So we can say eventually the lampstand was removed. But he warned them at the time to stay with him during the tribulation times, during the hard times, and he'd give them blessings and curses what would happen if they did not. So he's continuing to remind them. Remember, Ephesus was extra good at works, which is great but it had lost its first love. That is its personal intimacy in the presence and his relationship. They had to, were to keep that. They just went through the form, and they even suffered for the gospel. He commended them twice that they persevered under persecution. So you can suffer for the Lord and yet miss the Lord by not being close to the Lord. So he's after the relationship, and the works is important. You cannot make it into heaven without spiritual works. You cannot make it to heaven without fruitfulness and obedience. So we need to tell you that all of these isms and false Christianities that propagate otherwise, they have messengers of the devil. And they give people false assurance and false peace and these people will stand speechless when they're cast into the lake of fire. See, then they'll know the truth. At the judgment of God and Christ, the conscience will not be able to be hardened. You cannot be deceived. The devil will be removed from the situation. You'll have to see what you don't want to see, but then it will be too late to do anything about it. As the five foolish virgins found out, they slept too long, and it was too late to come to the wedding feast. 
Okay, so we see they were good, it works, but they had to have relationship and spiritual works to prove their faith and loyalship. We said like the parable of the prodigal son, the elder brother did work and duty very well, yet he did not understand the father. The father accepted the repentance of the worthless son, and he had become worthless. He squandered the inheritance, the money the father gave him when he went away. And when he left the father's house, he was dead to the father. He was not under authority. And the father makes it plain that when he left, he said, my son, that was dead. When he repented and came back, he said, and he's alive again, okay? But that was his prerogative to show grace, extra grace. So he accepted his repentance. The elder son complained, and he said, well, you've never given me a calf and to celebrate and have a party with my friends, but as soon as your worthless son comes back and repents, you accept him into the fold. And when the father's reaction is, which was strange to the son, he said, you could have taken what you wanted. You didn't have to ask me for anything. You were obedient. You were faithful. Everything that I owned, you were responsible for. You were a grown adult. You could have taken a calf and have a party. You didn't have to ask me. See, he he dealt with his father's more as a servant. And so he missed or never had the first love. So we see that something was wrong there. But the father said, you could have taken it yourself. He did not have a close relationship. He had lost his intimacy, or we should say he lost, if he had, the first love. And so the Lord does not like that, okay? But the father chose to forgive the younger son as he repented. He did not forgive him or accept him at home until there was repentance. See, people think he always just waited. No, as the uh, worthless son headed home, that was a sign of repentance, and he did repent. The father then went to meet him. But when he left the house, he was lost. He was no longer his son in relationship, okay? So God does sometimes show good even to the evil and unthankful. He does not instantly judge sins. He gives people time to repent. That is grace. Now, that is unmerited grace, if you want to hear about that, that you hear so much about, and it's been perverted so much. Unmerited grace simply means God chooses to do something and chooses to extend himself. He doesn't owe it to him, especially to the backslider and the sinner. He owes them judgment and righteousness and holiness, but he chooses to extend himself. But those who've received the grace of God, it doesn't become just unmerited anymore. They're responsible for the gifts and grace that God gives them. They will be judged more severely if they rebel against him or his grace that was given. Peter gives a warning to the one who forsakes the Lord, and Hebrews tells us how much greater punishment you think they're going to get. So if God extends grace, that's his prerogative. If man does not respond to it, he will be judged more severely for the grace that was extended to him. So see, all works out there. 
Everything's fair in, in the long run. God is not unfair or unjust. He is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't just pick somebody because he likes the way they look. That is the world. Okay. Has no bearing with God. Scripture, Proverbs says, beauty is vain. It doesn't impress God. It says the strength of a man's legs, how he can run and uh, warfare, doesn't impress God. It doesn't move him. They're just responses to the natural being. These are human elements. They're not spiritual elements. Okay, He's looking for something else. So Ephesians, we find then that God is doing another extension. He's extending grace to them. He warns them. He gives them time. He promised them certain things. So this is God's unmerited favor. He does not owe them. But to the children of God, he does owe them as far as his character. Hebrews says it's unrighteous for God not to remember the good works that Christians have done to other Christians. He rewards righteousness. Even though the righteousness has to be Christ and the person, he still rewards the person. And he rewards the wicked for every sin that they commit that's not been repented of. So he considers it unrighteous not to reward the righteous. Okay, That's his way. So it's not irresistible grace. It's not all faith and grace. These are lies to excuse men's license to sin. False gospel out there. Many fall for this foolishness. Rubbish, we can call it. Okay, and so we see then that the Laodiceans, the Lord had nothing good, we will find out, to say about them. Of the seven churches, he had nothing good to say. Their lifestyle, their works, and fellowship was all false. That all forfeited it. They were all, at one time, most of them were true Christians. They were not true Christians anymore. Uh, people say, well, they had the lampstand. Well, let me tell you, you do not stand outside a person's door and try to get them to let you in because he's not in you anymore. He's given you grace, extension of grace to repent that he can come back in. He does not have fellowship with them. We will find out that they're naked and shameful. They're not Christians anymore. Now, we're talking about a vast majority where there's always individuals at home churches that could be faithful to the Lord. But we're talking about the overall area that was considered a church, okay? And so we see then Christ knows all about their works and deeds. So he tells them this, which he did every church. Remember, they were not a large building, but many home fellowships. And so he firstly begins to tell them, you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were one or the other. Cold, they are not professing or living at all for God. Hot, they were zealous and right in their good works, spiritual works, and in their relationship with the Lord. They still maintained the first love. So he was saying, I would that you'd be one of the two. See, if you're on the fence, he pushes you over to the other side. See, a double-minded person, the Apostle James says, is unstable in all of his ways, and don't think that God will answer his prayers. He said, don't think you'll get anything from the Lord. He doesn't listen 
to a double-minded person. Once they're up, they're down, they're back, they're forth, they're on a roller coaster. And so he's not interested in that. You either follow the Lord or you don't follow him. That's what he's basically saying. Don't play the middle ground because it doesn't work. Okay, in Romans 5, 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out at our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, what is he talking about? This is God's love for us. Our love for God is mainly manifested in obedience, keeping his commandments. There could be emotions and feelings, but they're vague if there is no obedience. The Lord himself said, why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I tell you? The same apostle here, when he wrote his epistle, he said, if you love, say you love God, so you can have all the emotions and feelings and sing all you want, and you can give your money and everything. And he said, but if that person does not keep the commandments of God, he is a liar. See, God looks at it. That's the main foundation of our proof for the love of God is not emotions and moods. It's obedience. It's duty and obedience. We are under probation and we're being tested. And even the angels in heaven that are faithful, they do his will. They always do his will. They always seek to please him as Christ did. So this is God's love for us who are in Christ. This is what our first love responds to. That our love is spirit, soul, and body. It's keeping his works, his will. It's what we call practical lordship. So I've dealt with many people over 50 years, and they try to convince me they love the Lord. And I don't have to judge or discern what they say when they've already told me they're living in adultery. They're already corrupt. And so I simply tell them what the Word says. You're a liar, and the truth's not in you. You're disobeying the command of God, so he rejects that love. He doesn't accept it. Same as under the Old Covenant. You can sing and worship and have ceremony, but if you don't repent of your sins, it's an abomination to the Lord. The Bible says the sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. He detests it. They're better off giving him nothing than to play the hypocrite. The thief and the prostitute in the old were not allowed to give gifts before the Lord's altar. They were unacceptable. Their means was corrupt. He don't care for anything from them. It insults his holy nature for people to offer him the fruits of crime and wickedness. What he wants is repentance. Okay, he tells them, the Laodiceans, I know your works. Notice he says, I know you. So we'll go back real quickly since it's the last part of verse 14. He is the amen, remember, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So this is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. So in 15, he says, I know your deeds or your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were one of the two is what he's saying. I could wish is what it means, that you would get in or get out. 
just stop playing around. Uh, you got to do one or the other, uh, or he will count you as being cold in the day of judgment. Okay? So with all the churches, Christ knows about their works, their actions, their deeds. And he tells them as a whole what they are. As a whole, the church was dead and lost and backslide. Okay? And this is the message he had for them. He had nothing good to say to the overall church. Other churches he commended. Some he had nothing bad to say about them. So he dealt with them according to their overall actions, the overall what professed to be the Church of Christ in the many home groups. So even in Laodicea, there may have been a couple of home groups that were faithful. Because in Sardis, remember, the overall church, the Lord said, you have a reputation for being alive. You're busy. You're religiously busy doing things. Don't that sound familiar? He said, but you're dead. And then later on, he says, but I have a few and sawdust who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in heaven. So we had some faithful Christians, but very few. That's about how it is now. The age we live in is a mixture of the sawdust and the Laodicean-type churches, and we can see the results of them, okay? And so the Lord had said, why call me Lord? Lord, if you do not do what I tell you, See, he is the master. Why do we call him Lord? Because we are to obey him. We are to follow him. So many people do not do that. And in the last lesson, we were warned not to let anyone steal our crown. Well, most people and professing Christians in this age, they do this. They fall away from the church. Oh, many of them still go to an institution. But they put their families and their jobs and everything else before God's will. And therefore, he would say to them, don't call me Lord, you don't obey me. So we have many false Christians in this dark time. We have many denominational and organized people who meet two or three times a week, and they're false Christians as far as the Lord is concerned. They have religiosity. They're like the Pharisees did. They were very religious. It just wasn't the proper kind of service to the Lord. Remember the Pharisees, the law prescribed 40 to 50 rules that they were to obey. By the time the Pharisees came along and Jesus, they had 640 some. And Jesus said, you put all these burdens on people and yet you don't even lift a finger to help them. He went after their love and their spirit. They were false. He called most of them hypocrites. Yet they were very religious. They thought they were the elite. They thought they were Jews. And when they attacked Jesus, they inferred that he was born out of wedlock. They must have known the story and didn't believe it. And yet Jesus answered them and said, you say that God, Jehovah, is your father. He said, but the devil's your father. So he refuted them as a whole as being a true Jew. He called them what they were. Okay. And so in verse 16, so because you are lukewarm, you are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth or spew you out. Some use the word vomit you out. So it means they were a part of him. And then they weren't a part of him. They were 
in relationship at one time with the Lord. They were in the vine. And we will find later he's outside trying to get back in because he's not a part of them. He's spewed them out, and his spirit has departed from them. They don't have the spirit of Christ anymore. So much for once saved, always saved. Uh huh. And so what does he say? I will spew or vomit you out of my mouth. You'll not be a part of my body. You have become bitter fruit to me, bad tasting and sickening to my stomach. Okay, that's the implication. You were a branch, but you stopped bearing good fruit. And we know what happens to those who do not bear good fruit. Eventually, after the Father extends a little time and gives them opportunity to repent, he cuts them off, and ultimately, the only use is to be burned as fuel. A warning to the backslider of the lake of fire that's coming. The only use the wicked have for God is punishment and to show the angels and the overcomers God's holiness and vindication of his holiness to the universe. While the lake of fire, it's believed, will be outside the city of the New Jerusalem. And it says, and the smoke of their torment forever will ascend before the Lamb and his angels. It shall not go away. So they will see the holiness and God's reaction forever to what he's going to respond to the wicked, angels or humans. That's the holiness of God. That's why Paul made it plain. He said, I'll do whatever it takes to attain to the resurrection of the just. Paul did not believe he was eternally secure, no matter what he did. He actually tells us, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel I must preach it even against my will, even if I don't want to. That woe meant a curse on me. The prophets did not have an option to obey the Lord. You either obeyed him or you rebelled against him. You're his. He has the right to command service and duty from anyone. And that's what he's going to do. Okay, and so we see that they were rejected by God, and they were cast out. They were vomited out. We see later that he's on the outside of the door of their heart, knocking and giving them opportunity to let him in. That's the extension of grace. So every backslider has not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Very few have. They can come back if they live. If they don't die by happenstance, a circumstance, which they're taking chances, because they're not in the covenant anymore, God has no obligation to protect them. See, once you leave the covenant, there are certain obligations the Lord doesn't have. But if you're in the covenant, you're not going to die without the Lord's permission. Even if he, it's not the perfect will of God, he still has to consent to your dying. With the wicked, they die by chance. They die by circumstances. They die by just things happening in the world. And Jesus implied that when he said the tower fell on the 18 men and killed them. And he asked a rhetorical question. Do you suppose they were more wicked than other people? See, the people back then and today, they think that a person has a bad, tragic death. They must be judged. Well, the Lord straightened them out. He said, unless you repent, you shall die likewise. 
What does he mean? He means you'll die by chance. Things happen. The people didn't build the tower right. The physical laws came against, and too many people were there, and it fell and killed them. It wasn't that God demanded it to fall on them. So he lets them live out their life often. The average human, the average sinner, lives until he's old, and then he goes into judgment. God doesn't interfere with the natural laws. But with the Christian in covenant, we're under a different system. Okay? And so he extends his grace, his unmerited favor, and he gives them opportunity to repent, to come back, to take his warning seriously. And the same as Paul and Romans says, he gives the stubborn person and the Jews and the willful people against him. He says, don't you know that God, by him not immediately judging you, he's extending grace to you and hopes that you repent? And he used a strange word. He said, and the longer it goes on, he says, did you not know that you're storing up wrath for the day of judgment? It means that every extension and grace that God gives them, which he doesn't owe them, justice eventually is going to be called into play. If he shows more grace to a person and they don't respond, the justice comes in. They will be punished justly for the extension of grace given to them. That's why Jesus, when he preached to the cities and towns around in Israel, he pronounced some woes on them. He said, if I'd done the miracles and stuff that I did here in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would repent a long time ago. He said they would repent. He means if I extended this kind of grace, they would have responded. But he didn't, and he wasn't required to. So he said, woe to you. Sodom and Gomorrah will have a better standing at the day of judgment than you will. See, that's God's evaluation. So he considered these sins, these towns and cities, worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. All we hear about is Sodom and Gomorrah. God evaluated the Jewish system is being worse. That's why he destroyed it and the temple worship and so forth in 70 AD. It was a matter of him waiting long enough, generations to generation. And then finally, when they killed the Lord of glory, who was to save them, that was the final straw. And then he decided to make an end to them during this period. Though the multitudes of Jews back then uh, and today, though there is the stars of heaven and and a number is the sands of the sea, the Lord says a remnant shall be saved. That means a very small number. Well, actually now, at the end of the Gentile age, which is coming, overall, the Lord told Peter, few there be that are saved. But it implied, percentage-wise, less Jews would be saved because of the great privileges given to them for hundreds of years and for several generations, God measures it outright. See? He doesn't overlook his gifts. He doesn't overlook his grace, his unmerited grace. They will answer for not responding to the grace that he extended them. Okay? Okay, now he's quoting them. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, And he said, but you do not know, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Uh, that's a, a mouthful, isn't it? But notice what he says, you do not know. Why don't you know? Because you're deceived. Your sin has deceived you, you foolish people. When the Antichrist comes, he will deceive the masses of the world. Why would he deceive them? Because lying spirits will come forth. And where shall they come forth from? God will send them. People say, oh, God wouldn't do that. He most certainly would. He said, because they love not, because, for this reason, because they love not the knowledge of the truth. When they were given the truth through their conscience or the gospel, they didn't respond to it. They didn't want it. He said, I will send them a strong delusion. He sends the lying demons. Who does? God does. That's his judgments. They're under his control. When he departed from King Saul, it says, when the spirit of the Lord departed from him, an evil spirit from the Lord came to him and terrorized him. So God uses the devil. See, he has the right to do this. He punishes wicked Israel at times by their wicked enemies. He does what he wants. See, he doesn't waste anything. He's the true economist. And the wicked that he uses to punish them don't get no credit for it. They're doing by nature what they would have done anyway. He just manipulates them and puts them in the right position to carry out what they want to do. So Satan gets no credit for leading people to murder the Son of God. He does that by his own nature and his own deceptions. See? And God, though, answers it. It's a beautiful scripture says. There is no wisdom nor counsel against the Lord. The enemy can try what he wants, but certain things God's going to do, or he answers faith, and he overrides it. And the devil and the enemy get frustrated because they can't outsmart God. See, that's it. They cannot do it. Okay, because means for this reason. Because you're neither hot nor cold. He told him what? I will spew you out of the mouth. Now, he says, you said I am rich and wealthy and have no need of anything. Okay, they based their walk and their Christianity with Christ on money and goods. Sounds a lot like the faith and prosperity teachings, doesn't it? Nothing more than covetousness, materialism, and Paul called it idolatry. Interesting. Look at this, Ephesians chapter 5. The greasy graces don't read a lot of Paul's writings. They take, as the Apostle Peter said, they twist and distort his words to their own destruction. They'll grab four or five scriptures at the expense of 25 scriptures. They don't understand where to place it. See, that's the deception that's, that's put on them. For this you know. Actually, the translation is, I want you to know this. He said, know this. Otherwise, this is a fact. That no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man, and then he makes it plain, who is an idolater. Who is the covetous man? He's an idolater. And what does he say? He doesn't have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He will not inherit heaven. That's what it means. An inheritance is always future, after you're dead. doesn't mean anything to do with the earth here. It means you won't make it to heaven. 
See, it's very plain there. In the next verse, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because they do these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Well, I'm sorry, but the once saved, always saved. The once have faith and grace and you're all right are liars. They're false shepherds. They're lying to people. So if you, in my counseling, and I've dealt with it many times, you talk to people and they tell you, it isn't, you guess what they're doing, they let you know what they're doing. And they tell you, I've been living in fornication or adultery for six months, seven months. I said, well, you're not a Christian anymore. Oh boy, they spend a half an hour grabbing scripture to defend themselves. Oh, but you don't understand. Oh, I understand very much what you're saying and what you may have had. But Paul makes it plain three times, and he's the great faith and grace. He said, if you practice, practice means you don't just do it one time, you keep doing it. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why won't you inherit the kingdom of God? Because you're not a Christian. Aha, that blows their mind. See, they, they're, it's funny, these people that talk so much of grace are the most legalistic people. They grab the wrong scriptures, says they'll never understand. He says the wicked will never understand spiritual things. He gives them over to lying spirits. Oh, I, I've had people practicing and doing it, and right at the moment saying, I'd like to come back and talk to you, but i got to meet this whore. But I, I'm going to prove to you that I'm a Christian. And I laughed in the person's face, the sailor. I told him, you're a child of the devil and on your way to hell. He never came back. I wonder why. Oh, he believed he was, because someone said, say this little prayer that makes you a Christian forever. Lying shepherds, okay? So you say that you don't have need of anything. What else did they have that he didn't mention? It's just the natural consequences. They were deceived. See, you do not know that you are deceived. You think you're a fine Christian and you're measuring it by your position and your goods and you're a liar. Okay, let's take a break here.